Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Weinbanks. And today's hashtag Jill's Pin is an eagle holding a shield that says January 6th. And as soon as we introduce who our guest is today, you will understand why my pin says January 6th. We came close to losing our democracy on January 6th, but for the heroic and brave actions of certain individuals, including the Capitol Police. On that day, our democracy might have collapsed, but our Capitol Police protected our Capitol and our elected representatives. They defended our democracy, and they faced a group of insurrectionists acting on the words of then-President Trump as they tried to overturn a free and fair election by preventing Congress's counting of the electoral votes. Today, we'll be talking to one of those police officers who protected our nation on that day and who continues to be a strong and forceful voice for accountability and justice for those involved on January 6th, all the way up to Donald Trump himself. And our guest today is Officer Harry Dunn. I'm sure you all have seen him on television and uh, other media. Harry Dunn served heroically on January 6th as a Capitol Police officer and still does so to this day. Because of his service and devotion to our country, throughout his time as a Capitol Police officer, President Biden has awarded him the highest civilian honor that anyone can get, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, Officer Dunn is speaking out loud and strong on every subject that is important now about what happened on January 6th and what we must do going forward to prevent a recurrence of anything similar to January 6th. He has also written a wonderful book, and it's called Standing My Ground, a Capitol Police Officer's Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble After January 6th. Harry, I know that this is going to be a great discussion. I know you met Victor in D.C. For me, it's our first meeting, and I am very honored and excited to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us. We are very glad to have you as a guest today. Thanks for having me on. It's good to talk with you all. We're looking forward to this conversation. And just in the few minutes before we started recording in our conversation, I just thought you had the most interesting answer about writing a book. Uh, You said it was surreal that you had written a book. And, but you said, what else? (laughs) It's even more surreal, the reason why I had to write the book. You know, it just, you know, just writing a book, obviously it's it's a huge accomplishment and I'm, I've struggled to try to find the, the celebration in being a published author. You know, everybody says I should be so proud and everything like that. But I struggle with I struggle with finding the pride in it because it's talking about one of the darkest days in our history. And, you know, some, you know, the, the battles that uh, the men and women of the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police had to endure that day. And the um, the uncertainty that I have had up until now in the in the justice department so it's not a a happy book with a happy ending um but you know it's, it's surreal that i had to write it because of those reasons so it is but you should of course take pride in having accomplished that and of having been such an important part of resisting what happened on january 6th because without you things would have, without you and all of your fellow Capitol Police officers, I don't know what would have happened. And it was a dark day. And unfortunately, as you pointed out, it isn't over yet. Yeah, it's still going on. That's that's the scary part. And, and, you know, we want to get into everything that you mentioned, Harry, and I'll just start by saying I, I'm uh, currently I have to write papers uh, as an English major. I will say I can barely get a three page essay. And so to write a <laughs> page book is quite impressive. <laughs> um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Of course. So so let's get into, um, I guess, part of the reason why you wrote the book, because of there's so much still election denialism and just Last week, Republicans elected a new speaker, Mike Johnson, who voted against confirming the Electoral College votes on January 6th. And before that was a key architect of um, this amicus brief filed by Texas to overturn the results of the election. He pressured you know, his colleagues to join him in the brief, um, ignoring Johnson's sort of political agenda and focusing just on his role sort of in and leading up to January 6th and since, how do you feel as someone who suffered on January 6th to this elevation because of his role? Um, like, how do you feel about all of this? And 
Well, the thing, we're seeing in the party. This, it's interesting that you say that. Like, I, I really believe in democracy and I, I believe in it, even when it's not the things that I agree with on the issues. I really believe in the process and how it works. So them objecting to the certification was within their their the roles they had the ability to do that legally they had the ability to go to the courts and file briefs and all that they had the ability to do that um like i said i i disagree with it wholeheartedly you know it wasn't any fraud or anything and the courts obviously have the last say that's how this democracy kind of works and once they establish all their legal challenges and those are exhausted then that's the end of it you don't go on January 6th and storm the Capitol and try to change it by force. So like, like I said, I disagree with what they did as far as like the, the going to the judges and everything, but that was legally within their right to do so in the constitution and it, it, it protects them to, to be able to do that. But once the courts say, that's it, nothing here, then that's the end of it. We shouldn't hear anything else about it. If you want, you want to win an election, do a better, put a better message out there. Or at least a better messenger. Uh, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but but I, I wonder, though, how you felt in the days after when you were on duty protecting the same people who had encouraged the rioters, who hadn't done anything to, to help. All, all the Republicans who were lying, and, and remember, their objections to the certification were based on a big lie that they all knew was a lie. Yeah. Yeah. So what does seeing them make you feel? I mean, how do you feel every day? Well, so, you know, becoming a police officer, you don't do it just to, you know, protect one particular person, especially a Capitol police officer. We're not out there walking the beat and, you know, <clears throat> we just have, we're a different type of police force. But for me specifically, I had to change my mindset and focus on what is really important. And that is democracy and defending it. And the people that occupy those seats that I may disagree with their views, um, that seat has to exist um, for another person to potentially hold it again, um, e even after I'm no longer here. And that's, you, it's kind of a, I think of something bigger than yourself moment. You know, it's, it's, you know, the bigger picture is protecting that seat so it can still exist. Um, because like I said, who, who knows what, if those people would have succeeded on January 6th, then what this country would look like today. So do you um, still talk to any Republicans? Do any Republicans ever come up to you? And if so, what are those conversations like knowing that? No, it's, it's not, it's not the juicy or anything like that. You know, it's just like a hello kind of thing, but you know, they, you know, good morning, good morning, man. Good morning, sir. Yeah. Um, have a good day, man. Have a good day. Very professional when I'm doing my job. So now I'll, I'll just I keep it at that, you know, just a very professional level. So that is very mature and professional of you. <laughs> I would I feel like it's the only way I can <laughs> I feel like it's the only way I could get through my tour. <laughs> yeah. Professional. That's it. Have you seen by any chance Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger after they left office? And uh, I talked I talked to um, Adam, I talked to Adam Kinzinger recently. Um, he has, a, he's going to have a book coming out and, um, I'm very excited, uh, for him. He's a, he, he's a, he's a good person. He checks in on me occasionally. Um, we communicate on Twitter or X. Well, no, it's Twitter to me. It's always Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, um, I haven't talked to, um, Liz Cheney. I talked to her, uh, former chief of staff, um, not too long ago. I see, I would see her occasionally, but, um, but no, there's, those are, those are two individuals that, you know, while I disagree with them on a lot of uh, issues that, um, you know, are front and center currently, um, there are two people that I know that I could trust to do the right thing. So, Are there any other Republicans right now that you think you could trust? Any others who you might be able to, you or anyone could persuade to pay attention to the facts? Well, see... I'm glad that you brought that up. So like my book that I wrote, it, it's not for members of Congress. It's not for elected officials. It is for the American people to have a, a, a factual on the count, on the record account of what happened that day. And it is like, I consider like the world to be on fire. 
and I hopefully I look at my book as a fire extinguisher. So I try to educate the people because who holds who holds the elected officials um, responsible? The American people do. It's not me, just a, a lowly Capitol police officer. It's not me, um, but an educated voter is a is a, a smart voter. Educated voter is a, the, the best type of voter, and they make educated. Um, decisions when they're voting, you'll get better candidate, uh, better people um, serving the people that they're voting for. And that can be on either side of the aisle. Doesn't It's not Republican or Democrat, but people need to be educated and you make educated decisions and cast an educated vote. So my book is mainly for them, not the elected officials. Uh, I mean, if they read it, that's great, but um, this is for the American people. Um, I, I'm not out here trying to score political points. I'm just a, I was just an officer who was there that day. And um a lot of times people hear elected officials and they think that they're doing nothing but trying to score political points. Um, I don't have anything to gain out of this except for, you know, how I would vote. And I'm trying to get, get people to see things my way. What what has been the the feedback like since after you you wrote this book? I mean, you mentioned reaching the American people. Have you heard from any maybe Republicans or Trumpers in particular who have read your book or heard your message and who might see the light a little bit now? Um, not yet. I, it's been a whirlwind, honestly. I haven't had time to sit down and actually, you know, take it all in. But, um, you know, just still trying to make people aware that my book exists. Um, but no, I, I, I haven't gotten any feedback. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I don't know what to expect. So um, anything is going to be new to me because this, like I said, this is a whole surreal process. Yeah. Um, but here we are. I do sense, though, that you have some optimism that your story will reach people and that your book will get a message out to some of the people who haven't paid attention or to the people who are deliberately spewing lies. They know the truth, but they are continuing the big lie and election denialism. Um, so I, I'm just, I mean, I hope you're right and that that can happen. And I, I would assume it was very difficult for you to write the book um in fact yeah. you said it was sort of like therapy Can yeah, you talk about the thing. yeah yeah of course um so yeah i as far as it like reaching people i i don't know like i it was it was therapeutic for me to write that and it was also um a bit cathartic you know i it brought back a lot of memories um this thing that you had to relive and um but it was necessary and even if I inspire one person talking about like the resiliency and the, the it's called standing my ground. So it's literally a, a book and kind of like not giving up because you know what you're doing is right or what you're fighting for is worth it. And that's the thing, like that's the main thing in my book. What I'm fighting for this democracy, it's so worth it because we've overcome so much in this country. Um, and it's been by standing up and getting in good trouble uh, as you know, as the the ode to John Lewis in my in the subtitle of my book, um, that the things that we're fighting for, even like it's even just re reproductive rights for women, or you know the the right to exist in the LGBTQ community, um, just those those fundamental rights to people, like it's not coming easy, which is crazy to me, but it's important for us to keep fighting for it, and um, it's not going to be easy but you have to continue to stand your ground because knowing what you're fighting for is worth it. It's a great title. And I think it will inspire a lot of people. And so much of your book isn't just sort of the fact checkable truth, but it's also your truth and your story of how you protected um, the nation on January 6th. So if we can let bring us back to that day, did you ever imagine in your time being a Capitol police officer that it would ever reach that point? No, um, never, never thought that it would reach that point. Maybe that's because I, uh, and that's going back to what you said, Jill, um, but maybe I just had the hope and the optimism. I believed in this country. I still believe in it, you know, because after that hope is gone, then what else do we, why am I doing it? You know, if we don't have just a little bit of hope, then what's the point? Um, like you said, it's going to fall apart anyway. Why, why wait? Why prolong the inevitable? Um, because I believe that it, it can hold. I do have faith in the American people. Um, so yeah, I, bring it back to, no, I never thought that it would happen, um, but it did. And we need to make sure it doesn't happen again.
I, I hope we can find the way. Um, are many of the police officers who were on duty that day still with the Capitol Police? Um, yeah, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but I know a lot of people left the department afterwards. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a, a, a number specifically, but we lost a, a good chunk of officers. Um, I don't know if it's specifically related. I didn't do an, uh, an exit survey, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, there, there are people that did leave and, um, people that just, I just don't want to do this again. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, it, it does seem like with a traumatic event like that, that people might say, I can't do this again, especially under the current political divide where it might happen again. So well, that's so one of the reasons, like I said, but that's the thing. That's why I had to reshape my narrative because, you know, whether it's the person I agree with or disagree with, you know, that, that job is worth it and it's still worth fighting for, you know, it, I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I love this country. I love this country. And, you know, to have people that say they love it and treat it like they did on January 6th, um, we're not the same. Yeah. You know, one of the things that your book does, it's its not just about January 6th, it's also about, like we talked about, um, forward looking and, and anyone who follows you on Twitter and um, who knows you in person when I've met you will understand you're also a very just optimistic person, very um, just happy. And, and it's been such a joy yeah. to get to know you. But what has it been like to recover from January 6th? And what has been your way to grapple with moving on from that day? Um, and what has that been like? I am so thankful. I. I've been told that I inspire people and my God, that makes it all worth it because I'm going to tell my truth. I'm going to tell my story no matter what. Um, but the fact that it resonates with people and it gives people a sense of like resiliency to be how to be resilient. That means a lot to me. Like I said, it, it makes it makes it even more worth it because I know that somebody out there is listening to what I'm saying. And like I said, if they weren't listening, I'm still gonna say it because this is this is me. This is, I'm not speaking for anybody else except for me. Um, but it's kind of like, I'm saying what people are thinking. It's okay, that's cool. So, um, you know, you have to have a little bit of positivity because like I said, if you don't have that, then why are we even doing it at all? It's like, we're just delaying the inevitable and I don't wanna live life like that. Is and there any sense that you have that um, accountability would help to bring about more justice, would make you feel more satisfied with the outcome? I mean, there are trials going on now against some of the, the insurrectionists in the Capitol, but there's also the Donald Trump multi-trials going on. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering from your perspective, what would accountability and full justice look like to you? That's awesome that you asked that question because I talk about that part in my book. And, you know, if, like I say, if and when Donald Trump is handcuffed and goes to jail for the rest of his life, then I'll selfishly celebrate, I'll toast a nice glass of bourbon, and yeah. that'd be great. But that ideology of MAGA is still will be around. It still exists. Just be, it doesn't end with Donald Trump. Um, so it doesn't no, it doesn't give me a little bit of like happiness, I guess. It, it's it's superficial the happiness that I would, you know, re enjoy that day. Um, but as it, the country would still be maybe even more divided even when that time comes. So I struggle with trying to find the optimism in that because the um the it seems like the bad guys are winning or they're gaining more momentum. You know, I use the bad guy just for a simple term, but it just seems like they're gaining more momentum and that, that, that it's not encouraging, but I, I guess I, I believe that there are more good guys than bad guys out there. And um, the good guys are going to win. 
I, um, you know, imagining Trump being handcuffed and in a jumpsuit also, I think, gives a lot of people a great image to um, imagine. But I, I want to ask you more about that because you've been really outspoken about how you don't think um, Donald Trump will go to prison, be held accountable. But given these past few weeks, just feel like things are moving quite quickly. Um, does that change your mind in any way? Yeah, it did. Because like I said, when I when I wrote the book, one of the, the the hardest part one of the hardest parts about writing the book was how to end it because like you said it's still going on all this stuff is still ongoing and at the time when i wrote the book the charges were not you know brought by jack smith um so that gave me when the jack smith filed the charges in here in washington dc that gave me a lot more hope than um what what i initially had so yeah I, i'm optimistic but now it comes down to the a jury of your peers, our peers, his peers, um, holding him accountable. And th that's the way the justice system works. And um, we got to accept it as good times and as bad times, but um, let's just hope it works. Well, you're doing a lot of public speaking now about your book and other things. And I'm just wondering if you have had a chance to talk to any true Trumpers, MAGA people, election deniers, and how you talk to them? Is there I don't, any, any I way don't. to them? You don't. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't. Some people are 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 lost in an alternate reality. You know, as Nicole Wallace calls it, Earth One. You know, yeah. Earth One here. You know, and um, but I, I don't. I I don't. It's it's one. It'll make me angry. And you know, if if somebody was at uh, genuine about trying to learn something or see another reality, then they wouldn't come out with, uh, I don't know, maybe that's just me setting my boundaries so we're not getting furious. Um, but no, I don't, I, I don't have the energy to talk to people like that because that's willful ignorance right there. That's willful ignorance. Um, you know, somebody that just doesn't know the difference, that's a little, that's different, but you know, that that's willful ignorance, the things that have been debunked over and over and over again, and people are still believing them, then I have nothing for them. You're you're right to not waste your time on it because I have tried. And <laughs> get down to, could you point to one fact that supports what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And they go, well, yes, there were votes, ballots taken out of suitcases under the table. They had machines that flip votes. And then I counter with what are the facts? And yeah. they go, I don't believe any of that. Correct. Well, you have a conversation. There's no fact basis to have a conversation. So, Correct. so there's no point after that. I, I just think about what Hillary Clinton said a few weeks ago about how like we really do have to like deprogram these people. They've been like wired to think in a different way and deprogramming them is going to be a big challenge. But uh, I want to move to a different part of your book because and your story, because you also highlight, and this is what I'm so grateful for as well, the importance of mental health. And um, yeah. you've talked about um, your help being helped by counseling. Talk more about that. And um, should we talk more about mental health in this context? You know, I, I love having the discussion about mental health and, you know, one, because it's taboo and I like talking about taboo things. But um, secondly, you know, everybody struggles with something in some form or fashion, every single person, that every single person does. And I feel like that's one thing that we all can relate to because you, you show me somebody who's always got it together all the time, then I'll show you the biggest liar on this face of this earth because we nobody does <clears throat> and there's no there's no new slogan or helpline or website that we can you know use to talk about mental health all of it's out there we just need more people talking about it and making it um a norm instead of taboo like how many times every time somebody asks me hey how's your day everybody's going to say okay i'm oh, don't good i'm good don't fine how are you i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine and we're lying like there's Maybe you are at that moment, but how many times anybody asks you, are you okay? And you're not okay. And your answer is I'm okay. Like we do it all the time. And I, I don't like to live like that. I just, I share how I'm feeling all the time. And, you know, that's one thing that actually was helpful to, um, I did get feedback regarding that. Me talking about how I was struggling with PTSD and, you know, it, it was rough at some points and I had some coworkers um, that were there on the 6th that reached out to me and truly appreciated 
the sentiment of um, normalizing that this ain't normal and that it's okay to not be okay. It's one of my favorite sayings. So have you been able to talk to other people or right now, what would you say to people who are struggling? Do you have some tips that will help them continue to have hope and see the light? Well, so yeah, uh, the first thing, you know, obviously mental health, I mean, they're, they're counselors and therapists that are trained for that. Um, but secondly, you uh, surround yourself with people who are genuine, somebody who that ask you, hey, are you okay? If you dump on them and just tell them I am, I'm about to kill myself or whatever. And, you know, I don't say that lightly because that's somebody, maybe somebody's real response. Um, some, surround yourself with people who will support you, embrace you, that won't shoo you off, that won't tease you, that won't talk about you behind your back. And I know in this world that seems so hard to do because it seems like everybody is so shallow on, on the face of this earth. And not everybody, obviously. It's a lot, it's a lot of people. Um, but you have to have a good support system. And I know that sounds easier said than done, but, uh, but when you have somebody, know that you can lean on them. And to us, the people that we were able to have people lean on us, we need to make it clear that, hey, you're safe with me. Yeah. You know, so maybe it, it, maybe you're not the one that needs somebody to talk to right now, but maybe somebody is wondering, hey, can I talk to Victor about this? You know, and you need to make it clear, hey, man, if there's anything you ever want, I'm here. Just identify yourself as a safe space. Absolutely. You know, Jill and I, we were actually um, having a conversation when I was back home in Chicago, we were on a walk and we were talking about just like this. It, it often gets overlooked, but just the importance of being there for your friends. Um, and, you know, during hard times, just being that person who checks in and says, you know, like, how are things going? Like, that is so important, but people sometimes um, overlook that. Um, yeah. We have a few lighter questions that we want to um, end okay. on. First is, um, what is next for you? And I, I asked that with a with a particular emphasis on a recent tweet that you uh, <laughs> put up the other day about a seat in Maryland opening up. Uh, uh, can you share anything with us? I or also want to say, I've heard a yeah. lot of little suggestions in your answer about the fight for democracy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just wondering, it sounds like you would be a great candidate. You know, I tell you what, you know, I... <clears throat> Sure, it's an intriguing idea. Um, I'm definitely not in a position to answer that question on the on in, a, in an affirmative um, at this moment. However, I'm not ruling it out. You know, I, I would it's something I would definitely consider and think about doing. Um, you know, what better way of uh, extension of public service than to serve your community even more, um, to serve your country even more? So it, it's a I love the idea. But, you know, it's it's a huge decision that at this point in time, I'm not prepared to make um, because it's a lot that goes in with it. Um, but no, that, it's, 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 fun, it's fun to think about. It's fun to think about because all because you think about all the things that you may be able to do and the fact the change, that, especially, like I said, if you're doing it public service for the right reason. Um, I think a lot of people getting to elections and, you know, want to step into roles to see what they can get out of it, not what they can give to people from their roles. So, you know, I, I, I would, I, you know, I, I'm considering it, but definitely nowhere near close to saying I'm in there. <laughs> like, like, whoa, let's slow down a little bit, but yeah. You have a time frame in mind or? Is... I don't, because it just, it just popped up and I had, wasn't even thinking about it until I saw my, I was like, wait, this thing is really blowing up. Like, wait, whoa, 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 guys. I was just... <laughs> <laughs> slow down y'all so no I, I i don't um i'm just focused on making it to fridays right now it's a lot you know the the week is tough you know so we'll, i'll do i'll deal with it in my free time when i when i have a time to talk to i what i will do is i'll talk to people and in, in elected officials that i do trust and that i do value what they have to say and i'll get some opinions from them great and you're welcome back here anytime to talk about it thank you okay <laughs> i thank you i appreciate you you have a standing offer. And as the saying goes, if you can write a book, you can do anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, okay, so you mentioned bourbon um, in one of your answers. And I learned on Twitter, um, maybe through, I think it was someone who gifted you um, a bourbon bottle or a whiskey bottle. But talk about your love for for bourbon and whiskey, it seems like. It's so funny. You know, I when I was younger, like in college and everything like that, 
I would never drink bourbon or anything like that. I guess you did drink what you can afford then. <laughs> In college, you just like, well, just give me some. You drink rubbing alcohol, just whatever. It's just, but no, yeah, I don't know. I um, I started to get into it over ten years ago, maybe close to that, and um, I just had an affinity for it. It's, I, I can appreciate just having a nice sip with a you know every now and then, and the different uh. The, the the tasting notes that come along with it. It's 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 fun. And also being able to share that with uh, a group of friends, like a bunch of my 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 fellas, we uh we all like it too. So we'll show up with just a different um bottle or something that nobody's ever had before. And we just do like tastings and it's 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 a it's a fun time, you know, and uh there's some really nasty ones out there and there's some really, really, really good ones out there. So it's 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 a fun um, relaxing thing that I, I like to enjoy. Amazing. So Victor, do you want to ask your favorite question of all questions? Oh, well, yeah, I guess we, we, um, you know, we end the episodes usually by talking about, you know, intergenerational, bridging the intergenerational divide and giving people advice. Some of our younger listeners, what do you have to say to young people? Because I know how much you love young people. You have, um, you know, children yourself. What do you say to them in this world that you describe that is literally sort of on fire? Y'all are the future, man. You know, and like, like that seat that I'm protecting that I may not agree with that member who's holding it. It's yours to take, you know, be involved, care. That's one of the things I, I think about the most. Um, Michael Fanon often talks about the indifference is going to be the downfall of this nation and people not caring because people only care what when it affects us. I mean, I'm not getting off topic here, but look at the war, that's the, the wars that are going on in Ukraine. People, well, it's not us. It's not America's fight. That's not, you know, it, but but if it was here, we'd be, we're our allies and stuff like that. So people only care when it affects them. So care, care, care. And, um, Think about something bigger than yourself. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel good when, you know, it's so frustrating because it's just, it seems so simple. Just care about something. And when you do that, you have the power to embolden people, inspire people. And um, I'm, 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 I'm very confident in Generation Z, man, y'all are making some of some amazing strides, and just y'all are turning out in record numbers as far as like the voting uh, turn uh, enrolling, um, you know, the 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 attack on women's rights and everything that people care about that, and your generation is leading the way in it. Um, so kudos to you and keep it up, man. I, I'm inspired by y'all. Well, we have generations ahead of us that um, we look up to, so. Thank you, Harry, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with y'all. Thank you so much. It was great talking with y'all. Victor, that was such an interesting discussion with Harry. He is really quite amazing. And I was very interested in his possibly running for office. But I was also very interested in one thing he said, and I'll tell you why. He said something about caring for things that are bigger than yourself and that most people really only care when it directly impacts them, which reminded me of the mass shootings that we have had periodically and way too frequently for many, many, many years. And the representative from Lewiston, Maine, Representative Golden, who right after that shooting said, I was wrong. I've changed my mind. I now he didn't care when Parkland kids were killed. He didn't care when Uvalde kids and name a hundred other places. It took the personal impact on his community before he saw the need. And so I was very interested in that. From your generational perspective, what do you think? You know, I I, I think there is actually a lot of that in my generation. Um, and, and, and I think of what happened with the fall of Roe and all of these mass shootings. When I talk to my friends, a lot of them are actually sort of apolitical. They don't really talk about politics. It's not a part of our conversations. But I remember specifically on the day that Roe fell, 
I saw so many people just sort of shocked into like caring about politics, caring about you know, knowing that a fundamental freedom could get overturned by the Supreme Court, starting to pay attention to the Supreme Court. I thought that was a big moment of like, you know, I, you know, for people like us, it's like we think about these things all the time. But for a lot of young people, at least that I know, you know, they don't really start thinking about these things until it is one of those immediate situations. Um, same with Highland Park. I was talking to some friends back at home. We never used to talk about politics, but after Highland Park happened, which you know is not too far away from where um, I'm from and where you are, Jill. Um, after that moment, I had a lot of my friends who said, you know, I'm I'm going to participate in our democracy. I'm going to make my voice heard. I'm actually going to speak out about um, gun violence. And I thought, you know, it's sad that it has to be one of those moments that gets people to care about politics. But I think what the result is, is this sort of generation that really is just so tired of it. And I think that informs a lot of the responses that a lot of our responses to these to politics now is out of anger and frustration and um, just so just seeing our world and, and seeing events like these where it just shocks us into um, consciousness. And so I think that's been particularly interesting to see. Um, but I hope it doesn't take more of these, you know, really deadly and, and um, catastrophic events to, you know, get people to care about politics. Although I do think what you're saying supports the distinction I'm making between caring about something bigger than yourself and then caring when it affects you. Right. Your friends are affected by Roe. Yeah. Friends are affected by gun violence because unlike me who grew up, you know, sitting in the hallway with my knees to my head, worrying about a nuclear bomb going off, you grew up with active shooter drills. That was not something that was in my lifetime. I mean, it, it is in my lifetime because I'm here now, but not when I was in school. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I, I guess I'm asking you, is there a way that we can get your generation to care about things? And it's I, I'm not saying it's unimportant because for a long time, my friends and I have been saying, you know, Roe and the right to choose is not our issue anymore. It has to be your generation's issue because you're the ones who will be deprived. And of course we care because our, our, our children, grandchildren, godchildren will be affected by it. And so again, but that's not directly affecting me. It's just affecting the world around me. Um, so I'm, I wanna get people to care about issues, not just hypothetically, but on the grounds of this is right. This is morally correct. This is within my view of the Constitution. I want people to care when Michael Johnson says, I want to create a theocracy. He didn't oh. use those words, but honestly, yeah. that's what he wants to do. He wants the establishment of his religion, not mine, not those who are atheists, not those who are Muslim, his religion. And our Constitution says there will be no establishment of religion. There will be freedom of religion. That means you can do what you want and I can do what I want, but you can't force me to follow your religion. I care about when he says that, not because it directly affects me, but because it's the right thing. But I want to make sure that people care about things that aren't in their own community, but that affect the world. And it's so interconnected. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a, an issue in California or in New York or in Texas. It affects the entire United States, and we should all care about the outcomes. Yeah, and I think part of what's interesting is, you know, I, I think the the distance between the problem and the solution is getting smaller and smaller to the point where now I think you have people who, when they experience these mass shootings time and time again, they see that the problem is the guns and that we need to get rid of the gun. And so I think a lot of people are aware of that. They're, they see what the problem is and they see what we need to fix it. Um, so that's, I think, a good thing. But I, I often, you know, I, I talk to you about just sort of um, what my AP government teacher used to tell all the students. And if only we could get that to every single person, but, you know, getting people to care about community and something bigger than themselves. Um, he has a saying of, you know, embracing the civics lifestyle and, and it should be a part of who we are. You know, it doesn't have to be a national issue. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, Washington DC cares about. I mean, if you care about your pothole being fixed, you can go and make a difference. You can, you can care about just finding that thing bigger than yourself. It should be a part of our identity as a nation. And um, the more we can do that, I hope, um, you know, more people will start finding those issues that are bigger than themselves. Um, and, In the and spirit of free association, uh, because you mentioned, and we've been talking about the mass shootings, um, the sisters-in-law this week, our last episode, which was released on Saturday, um, we talked about 
the shooting in Maine. And we also talked about the red flag laws, the yellow flag law that is Maine's law, and what are other solutions. And I just want to mention a few things here so that our listeners can maybe take it upon themselves to do something about it. First of all, we believe you need education about red flag and yellow flag laws. For example, if people don't know that they have a right to report someone who is mentally unstable and to say he has a lot of guns and he's threatening to shoot up the army guard or he's threatening to kill himself or someone else, if they don't know that they have that right, they can't implement it and then nobody does it and someone who has mental health issues continues to have the gun. But we also talked about, besides educating people about what the law requires. And the yellow flag law does have an extra step, which is you need a psychiatric evaluation, which in this case might have been available since he had been hospitalized for two weeks. But, uh, and I'm not mentioning his name because I don't believe that people who do this deserve to have uh, any publicity. But we also talked about the magazines. And, you know, the Second Amendment, despite what the Supreme Court says, was passed at a time when people used muskets. And it took a long time after you fired to reload whatever you had to do to get it into the musket. Nowadays, you can have, a, a, you know, 30, 50, 100 bullets in one clip. That allows you to do a lot of danger. And had he been able to, in Maine, purchase the silencer that he was trying to get before people heard the shots and could run for cover, he would have killed a Absolutely. lot more. Right. Right. So controlling silencers, controlling magazines, having better um, registration, having better you know, gun show um, rules so that you can't get away with it, having background checks and delays until they're completed. These are things that don't take away your right to a gun. They just make us all a lot safer. You know, and, and there's something that um, you know, going back to our conversation with Harry, you know, I, the guns are so important. We have to tackle that issue. But there's also, you know, mental health, which I think is also really important here. Um, and I, I talk about this from sort of my high school that I went to. I was privileged enough to go to a high school where there was a lot of, you know, psychologists and social workers available for students. And we created that sort of culture of if you need help, there are resources available to you. But go 20 miles north up to like a school like Barrington High School, for instance, they, I think, only had like three psychologists and mental health um, professionals available to students total for a school just as large as the high school that I went to. So there is this sort of like, we need to do better as a nation with mental health services. And Republicans will rush to that and say that, you know, we need better mental health. But just as a reminder for all of you, they say that, but every, I think it was every Republican or the vast majority of Republicans voted against more funding for mental health um, I think it was a couple of years ago or last year. And so, you know, I, I agree that we need better mental health services and Republicans say that they want it, but they don't actually believe it. Otherwise, they would have voted for it. Well, that's a good thing to leave our listeners yes. with. And yes. maybe write to your representatives and say, support whichever of these things you think is right. Support controls on the size of gun clips. Uh, support more mental health treatment start a conversation about why it's good and proper to have support and to go for mental health counseling, to talk to someone. Um, we're all living in a world of stress and fear right now. And it is always a good thing. You know, my husband meditates yeah. and it makes a big difference. I think, you know, maybe whether it's yoga or meditation or running or what, whatever, relaxes you, whatever takes you away from the stress of listening to the news. I just read a novel. I haven't read a novel in, I can't remember how many years, but I was so stressed from the news that I had to take a break. I just had to get out of it. And novels do that. They put you in a new time and place. And one of my best friends rec um, recommended lessons in chemistry. And boy, did that take me away from the stress. It yeah. was totally engaging and I loved it. And it really did relax me to not be thinking uh, about the news for uh, at least the hours that I was reading the book. And no. I found a eight, 18 or 25 season series on Canadian television called Heartland. Oh. And 
it's it's another thing that I can watch for an hour or six, depending on whether I'm binging or not, and totally forget that there is a world of stress around me and live in. I mean, they have some stressful things too, but um, I mean, I'll but be I, looking forward to. I mean, I'll be looking forward to the when uh, the Crown. They have a part one and part two that's coming out soon, and that series is very long. I think every episode is like an hour long, and so um, I'll be carried away with that. Um, but we have one more thing to talk about, which is something that's um, interesting that I found on a Yahoo Finance website, and it talks about uh, Gen Zers and how Gen Z job hunters say that they want to know what specific skills um, possible candidates have more than just a fancy degree from an Ivy League university or from a college. They want to know what skills um, employer or potential employees have. Um, Jill, I know you've done a lot of work in career and technical education and also just in your time hiring people. Talk about that a little bit and, and whether or not that was sort of also what you were considering and how maybe students and young people who are thinking about a career can think about what are skills that they're good at? How can they cultivate those? It's interesting because I read the same article that was, and I found it very interesting that it is less and less important or essential, let's say, to have a degree to get a job that a lot of people are doing better economically without having invested in a four-year college degree. Now, it depends on what you want to do and what your ultimate goal is, obviously, if you want to be a lawyer or an engineer, you're going to have to get that four-year degree and more. If you yeah. want to be a doctor, you're going to have to do it. But for a lot of other things, and as you know, Victor, I headed up, I was the chief officer for career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools um, just before I retired completely. Obviously, having failed at that right now, as you can see, because I'm still working pretty much full time. Um, I found in interviewing employers that they said, you know, you are teaching them, these students, the specific skills they need. If they know how to use the equipment in a manufacturing plant, they know how to repair a car, they know how to uh, measure and do some knife skills in a culinary institute, but they don't know the actual skills in the workplace. They don't know that being on time every day is not optional. They don't know that they can't be sitting talking on their cell phone just randomly. And so you're going to have to do better on those type of skills. They have to learn about cooperation in a workforce, about how you collaborate. Um, and I found that very interesting. So skills are important, but you do learn skills even in a liberal arts uh, degree. Obviously, it depends. I, my undergraduate degree is journalism. So presumably, I got some specific skills to prepare me for journalism. But I was originally, well, originally, I was in occupational therapy, which would have definitely given me specific skills. But then I was in liberal arts, basically, for a year. And so what would I have come out with? And you're basically a liberal arts student. You're yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there's actually a big now... Um crisis within humanities because um, a lot of people are saying, look, humanities doesn't really, I don't really know how to sell my humanities um, degree in a way where it will tell, you know, potential companies and employers, look or, look at what skills I've gained. But, I, you know, I think humanities gives you a lot of skills, you know, knowing how to analyze situations, knowing how to write, knowing how to, you know, look at a problem and, and find potential solutions. I think there are lots of ways we can talk about, you know, I'm an English major now or American literature and culture, which is under, under the English department, but there was a big New Yorker essay that came out um, a few months ago talking about how a lot of English departments have had to um, shut down because there just aren't enough English majors. But then I think about, okay, well, if you're an English major, you know how to write and you know how to talk and you know how to, you know, contribute to a discussion. And those are ways to, you know, you don't just have to be a professor to do that. You don't have to be a teacher an English teacher, you can also be a, you know, PR analyst or a PR person, or I don't know, go into uh, social media. You know, there are many ways to capitalize on a degree, but I don't think we put enough emphasis on that. Now, a lot of the conversations I'm a part of are just, yeah, you want to get into a great school, you know, major in, um, you know, something that's appealing, but, you know, what what's the sacrifice of that? Going to a great school is not inconsequential. Yeah, no, definitely. I still believe that when your resume says, name a school, it may have some influence, but I want to go to resume writing. And maybe there should be more education on that. 
because mm-hmm. when I decided to change from law to business, mm-hmm. I had to rethink, you know, my resume read like, okay, you want to hire a lawyer? Here I am. And I was very clear that I wanted to be on the business side, on the operations side. And I got offered so many jobs as general counsel of a company, not a job I was interested in or qualified for, really. I was a litigator. You don't want a litigator as your general counsel. But I started doing what you're saying. I started focusing on the skills I had. And instead of talking about, I tried a case, I managed X number of people on a team because management's important. And you're right. As a lawyer, I know how to listen and analyze and find a solution. That's something that you need, no matter what the job is. In business, you need that. So it is thinking about putting in your, you know, maybe the first paragraph of a resume where you put down just a few sentences And the other important thing is to talk about what you can do for a specific company, not why they should hire you, why what they can do for you. What will you bring that will benefit them? That takes, and and of course, nowadays in the era of computers, unlike when I used to have to hand type every single resume because there was no, you know, or I could print off one version. Now I could change, you know, something that related to I, you know, the size of a company or the particular product of a company. And so think about what you bring to the company, why they should be interested in you. And if you do the deep enough dive into the research online, which is obviously easy to do, you can find things to say. And when you're interviewing, if you figure out who the person is, you can sell yourself a lot better. I remember one job I interviewed for where I researched everyone who was on the search committee and I was able to say, well, like you, I went to Columbia (laughs) and bring them into the conversation and it, it works. It definitely works. So these are some tips I would say where skills are important, but knowledge is king. Um, And so be prepared and think about what you can do for the company, what skills you have honed that that company would be interested in. Yeah. If if you're going to be writing for some company, well, gosh, an English degree is a very good one because you've read a lot of great writing and you've learned how to organize and analyze and you've learned how to, you know, do whatever you have to do. So I, I think you can get a skills-based resume even with a liberal arts degree. I agree. Well, that is, I think, the perfect way to end this episode. Um, We thank all of you for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We will be back next week with another episode, so do not miss that. But in the meantime, you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts um, and also find us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon. If you watch us, be sure to like and subscribe and rate this podcast so that other people can find it. It helps us tremendously. Thank you, everyone, and we will see you next week. And if you have any questions or any suggestions about who you'd like to see us talk to, please send them to us, either at one of our social media accounts. Um, Either one of us will respond. Thank you very much.